do hope on this 4th of July weekend you have good opportunity to celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans. They are many and great freedoms, and in the history of the world, we are spoiled people. Uh, And we remember on a weekend like this that these freedoms were won at a great cost for us. Through the blood of generations of veterans and valiant men and women, and won through courageous creativity of our founding fathers and mothers, and through centuries of strong leadership, may it continue. But the truth is, as human beings, as Americans, we forget far more than we remember. If I were to ask you the names or the occupations of your great-great-grandparents, I'm thinking it's a pretty low percentage who could dig that information out of your mind immediately, and that's only four generations removed. Know what I'm saying? How quickly, how quickly we forget not only names, not only occupations, but what was essential about those generations that came before us. It seems that history remembers only a scant few, and it's usually spectacular heroes or spectacular villains that are uh, told about and have their stories retold. It is a rare person whose memory is still there five generations later, much less 250 years later, much less a thousand years later. But this Sunday, we begin an examination, a study of what God did through the life of a leader, a founding father of the nation of Israel more than 3,000 years ago. We still remember this guy's name, David, which means beloved. David, the beloved king of Israel. What is so special about this guy? It is true that in part he is exceptional, talented, extraordinary, heroic. He is, I think, hands down one of the top ten influential leaders in all of human history, King David of Israel. There is more in the Bible about this guy, David, 66 chapters he shows up in, than any other character except for Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? He casts a long, long shadow over biblical history, and not only is he in 66 chapters, but he wrote dozens and dozens of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. But at the same time, the Bible does not present this man simply as talented and extraordinary and heroic, it presents a picture of a human being like you or like me, someone who is deeply flawed, who is memorable, not just because of his greatness, but because of his humanity and because of what God did through a regular schlub like you or me. Really. Schlub. It's an allusion to an old Hebrew word, Mac. (laughs) So that's where we start today. With David, he's not going to have a line in his introduction today. He doesn't even get to speak. When we first meet him, he is the overlooked youngest kid in a big family. Now, the stories that you're going to hear in the months to come come by and large from the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel in the Old Testament. If you'd like a little Bible reading challenge... In your free time, read those books. It will serve you well when you come to worship. But ultimately, the story of David, I promise, is a story that points again and again to Jesus Christ himself. 
So in order to get to know David, I need to do just a couple minutes of history with you so we understand uh, a little bit what was going on in the nation of Israel when David was born. So a brief history of the kingdom of Israel, it can be summarized in this phrase. It is a long drift away from God. So here is the situation. In Israel, at first, there was no Congress, there was no Parliament, there were no governors, there were no presidents, there was God and God alone. And then God shows fit to, in certain generations, use leaders like Moses or Joshua to lead his people. And then there were long periods where the Bible says each person did as they saw fit. Hundreds of years went by this way. There were occasionally judges that God appointed, and the people ping-ponged back and forth between paying attention to God and his will for living a wise and free life, and then just doing whatever they pleased. The last of these judges was a prophet named Samuel. Samuel was a judge as well as a prophet. He may have been a great man of God, However, he may not have been the world's greatest parent, or maybe he just had really stubborn, difficult sons. As Samuel got older, he attempted to install his sons to follow in his footsteps and be the judges of Israel. But here's what the Bible says about Samuel's kids. Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice and started the city of Chicago. No, they didn't do that. (laughs) Right? They were politicians. And the people of Israel, there's no democracy, it's a theocracy, right? There's only God, but the people raise their voice, they write Samuel a letter that has three bullet points. Number one, Samuel, you're old. Number two, Samuel, your sons are jerks. And number three, we're done with judges. How about you appoint us a king like all the other countries around us? That is the way to run a nation. Samuel throws up his hands and says, don't you realize if you have a human king, what he's going to do with you? Don't you want God to be your leader? And the answer is no. We've had enough. We want a king. So God chooses, in deference to his people, God chooses a king, a man named Saul. Now, he is God's choice, but he would also have gotten the People's Choice Award in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago. And here's why. He is tall. He is handsome, imagine someone else, and he is a great warrior. He becomes king at age 30, and he reigns for 42 years. This is a long time in the ancient world. And he was a good leader at first, to boot. He surrounds himself with wise counselors. He wins some great military victories. Things are going great, but over time, Saul the king, the first king, drifts away from God, he starts to dabble in the occult. He not only becomes unjust, but he becomes murderous. And worst of all, he becomes unresponsive and disobedient to the very God that made him the leader of Israel. And after a final, pompous, disobedient, selfish act, the old, old prophet Samuel comes back to him and says, Saul, You have done a foolish thing, and now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out, and catch this phrase, 
a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Probably Saul is 55 years old at this point. Okay? He's maybe been ruling for 20-some years. In life, Saul was tall and imposing and cast a large figure. But if you read about him in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll notice that his physique belies his real character. His external appearance hides his inner timidity and lack of courage. It covers up that he is prone to hide and be fearful and that ultimately he is unfit to rule and lead. So God asked Samuel to anoint a new king. How do you think this is going to go with a living king still on the throne who's a little nervous about his place in the pecking order of things anyways? This is where we pick up the story today. We're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 16. The words in yellow are going to be yours to read, and those words are uh, the voice and the thoughts of the prophet Samuel. So here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Now anointing somebody with oil was the, kind of the way of swearing people in a long time ago. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, It's not in yellow. Sometimes we have technological glyphs. This is your line. How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Indeed, if Saul hears about this, he will be royally angry. Notice that it is not Samuel who chooses the new king. Notice that it's not left up to a popular vote. The only person in the universe who knows who the next king is at this point is God. God has already chosen. Samuel's going to do the anointing, but God and God alone has done the choosing. The passage continues this way. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, no yellow yet? Sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. This is a good line, too, because this is like the first time in chapters that anybody has done anything that God has asked them to do. Okay? <laughs> Samuel doesn't want to go. He's scared. He might lose his head. But he does what God asks him. Samuel did what the Lord said. And the, when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. The old judge has come to town. And they asked him, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied... Yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. So then Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So no one knows what's up yet. Samuel the prophet comes into town. Everybody's a little bit nervous because he's the judge. Is somebody angry? Is something horrible going to happen? Is something good going to happen? And then Samuel singles out Jesse of Bethlehem and his son and asks them to consecrate themselves. And now everybody is aware 
maybe something special is about to happen. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, and he thought this, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. This was because Eliab was tall and handsome and was a warrior. He was Saul, part two. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, have uh, you ever seen, I almost am ashamed to say this, like a Miss America pageant or a modeling show? I mean, there's this thing called a catwalk, right? And you come out, and I guess if you're, I shouldn't say too much about this, right? You walk the catwalk, and everybody, like, forms an opinion of you, and you come back, right? This is kind of the situation, except it's dudes in probably robes 3,000 years ago, right? It's like they come out, Samuel the prophet sees them. He's the judge of the pageant. They maybe flip a couple circles, and then, probably not, and then go back. And the oldest son has done this, and Samuel thinks this has got to be the guy. I mean, how could you get a better guy than this guy? And just like it would be a great disclaimer on the bottom of every Miss America pageant, the Lord does not look at what people look at. The Lord looks at what truly matters and looks to the heart. As this chapter continues, the parade goes on. Then Jesse called his son Aminadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, And then Jesse had his son Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, And so he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is out tending the sheep. And Samuel said, We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, who knows where this kid is? Right? He's out taking care of the animals somewhere. Everybody else is walking the catwalk. David, when we first meet him, is an afterthought. His father has not even invited him when the prophet said, Bring all your sons and consecrate them with a sacrifice. No one even remembered him. Now, having seven sons is a really lucky thing. Every culture everywhere, number seven, super lucky. What number is David? He is number eight. Maybe he's an accident. Maybe they didn't mean to have him. I mean, they had seven. How could he get better than seven sons? And his dad does not even think to invite him to join his brothers. And David is a shepherd. This is not an awesome job. It's not an awesome job now. It was not an awesome job 3,000 years ago. If there were not a youngest son to do this, it would be a hired hand, and it would be one of the lowly hired hands who is tending the sheep, but no, it is David. When we first meet him, he is small, young, little, overlooked. 
But God does not see as man sees. The Lord looks into the heart. The passage ends this way. So he, Jesse, sent for David and had him brought in. This is a lovely way to speak of a teenager. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Man, that must have been a total... (laughs) Anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. I cannot say this too many times. When we first meet him, David is a nobody that nobody noticed until God noticed him. You catch that? David's a nobody. Nobody notices him, but God notices him and chooses him not because he's great, but chooses him out of obscurity. Now, all of us on some level fight this little battle. We want to be well-known. We want to be recognized. We want to be worth something. I just turned 44 this year. It's like a good age to have a midlife crisis. I'm pretty convinced that most midlife crises are caused by people who get somewhere between 35 and 50, and then you have this crisis because you really want to prove yourself, to prove your worth, and maybe you're frustrated because you haven't done it yet. So you start doing crazy stuff just to prove yourself, or you start doing crazy stuff just because you're so frustrated that you haven't proved yourself yet. But some people, they get to middle age, and this deeper peace settles on them, and a contentment that they simply are who they are, and they are who God has made them, and they're going to continue to be who they are. David is king only because God chose him. And now from here on forward, David is going to have to choose to respond to God by behaving again and again like a leader, like a king, like a responsible person. And so it is with people of faith like us. God has chosen you, God has chosen someone like me to be his daughters and sons. His choice comes first. And then every day after that, it's on you and me to use the freedom and the love that God has put on us to choose to act like his children. But God's choice comes first. And that's what gives us freedom to begin with. Now, a few things about God's choosing. Number one, God's choice, unlike most of our choices, God's choice is never contingent. Like if you're 18 and someone says, I love you so much, it almost always is the kind of love that I love you because you're so good at this, or I love you because you're so attractive, or I love you because I'm an idiot at this and you're great at this, right? This is how human beings work. We love contingently. This is why we're attracted to each other. When God loves us, God loves us because he loves You hear the difference? God loves because love is who he is. His affection for you is not grounded in your achievement or your abilities. It is just because God chooses to love you. 
It's kind of like, um, you know, if somebody had a jacket that used to belong to Elvis. That's not very patriotic. A jacket that used to belong to JFK. Okay? This jacket, even though it would be 50 years old at this point, would be worth a lot of money. Not because it's an awesome jacket, but because of who it belonged to. You follow me? Every other 50-year-old jacket, it's like at Goodwill somewhere. JFK's jacket, really pricey. This is how it is with human beings and God. We are not, I feel a little bad saying this, just fundamentally valuable because we exist. We are valuable only when we belong to God and he owns us. We are valuable when our lives are found in Christ. David only had to show up on this day. He didn't know what he was in for, right? One minute he's out with a sheep, the next minute the choice, the love, the anointing of God is pouring down physically in a shower of oil over his head. Just to belabor this point, here's what C.S. Lewis says about this. The infinite value of the human soul is not a Christian doctrine. God did not die for humankind because of some value he perceived in us. No, the value of each human soul considered simply in itself out of relationship to God is zero. As St. Paul wrote, to have died for valuable people would not have been divine, but merely heroic. But God died for sinners. That's me. God died for me, sinner, zero. And he loved us not because we were lovable, but because he is love. God's choice, brothers and sisters, is what matters. Like David, we are nobodies that nobody notices, but we are made into somebodies by the love of the one who can make anything out of nothing. Now, if you have been touched by this love, if you have experienced this love, if you can remember the day when the anointing of God washed over your own life like a shower of oil, we call that being saved. We call that being in a relationship with God. And if it's happened to you, for sure you know it. And if it has not happened to you yet, praying for the day where you have this experience where you know once and for all that love... God loves you from your head to your toes, not because of what you've done. God never makes his choices based on our ability. What impresses God about David, we learn later, is not David's abilities. He has awesome abilities, okay? But that's not it. It is David's availability, We are very impressed when people are talented or skilled or able, right? God invented every talent we have. God is very impressed when people, no matter how much talent they have, are open and receptive and available to the Spirit of God, to the choice of God in their life. You know who is the most available person ever? Jesus, the son of David. So, when God said, you know what? 
divine, eternal member of the Trinity, your mission is to become a human being. Jesus was available for taking the ultimate step in downward mobility. He went from heaven to earth. He made himself nothing. And Jesus even took on this lowly job that great-great-great-grandfather David had. Jesus became not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd. David is a servant who becomes a king. Jesus is the great king who became a servant, and which is why for all time and eternity, he is number one in the kingdom of God and that God has appointed him to be the judge of the universe because he is the ultimately available person. Why does God choose people? It's a mystery. Well, because he's love. Earlier in the service, Ref shared the scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it seems like God takes pleasure in choosing the weak. And God takes pleasure in choosing the lowly and the humble of heart. And the reason that Paul says in 1 Corinthians is this. It's so that none of us can boast in ourselves but that if we would boast, we could only boast because of God and God's choice and God's goodness. And the only thing we can do moving on is simply to be available. So what does David do at the end of the scene? He has just been chosen to be king. And let's say Saul is 55 years old and David is maybe 15 years old. Does David go out and fight a duel to the death? Mano a mano? Does David go crown shopping? I'm the king. None of those things. David goes straight back out into being a shepherd. And we don't hear again from him for a little while. If God has chosen you, and he has many, many, many of us in this room, right? If God has chosen you to experience his love, it does not mean everything is going to be suddenly simple, rosy, successful, glamorous in your life. David becomes king and then continues to be trained by God to be a king. Here's God's training plan for David. Solitude, obscurity, and monotony. Does that sound like your life in any way, shape, or form? Maybe not because we're too busy distracting ourselves all the time. Right? We avoid solitude. We don't like being bored. And we don't like being unrecognized. And yet, in the great people of God, God always takes his loved ones into the desert for a period of life. So if this is happening somewhere on the fringes or in the center of your life, don't necessarily consider it that it's a bad thing or a painful thing but it might simply be part of God bringing you to the place where he wants and needs you to be who knows when the day is. If you have been chosen and loved by God, quite likely, now is a season of training. From the moment of his anointing, the spirit of the Lord gripped David, and from that day onward... God's spirit 
was on him, just like that oil that was poured over his head. As we hear about him in the weeks to come, we will find out that David can betray, David can sin, David can stumble, but David cannot fail because he has been touched by the inexplicable anointing and grace that the Bible calls the favor of God. Now, one way of describing a spiritual community, we are the sons and daughters of Abraham, we are the followers of Jesus Christ, we are also the sons and daughters of King David. And if, like him today, you have been called and chosen and loved, the same thing is true of you. You may betray. You may sin. You may stumble. But ultimately, you cannot fail because you, and this is what I am banking on for myself, because I have been touched by an inexplicable grace, brothers and sisters, that the Bible calls the favor of God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, your word, the Bible, it's a crazy book. Because you don't look at human beings the same way people look at each other, it confuses us that you would choose this obscure nobody from tending the sheep, but on the other side, God, it gives us so much comfort because it means that there is room for even somebody like me, there is room for somebody like us, and that mystery of mysteries that your love, that your choosing is so wide, that your embrace is so wide, that there's space enough for each and every one of us in your family. God, help us to respond, to be available to you, to be open to you, and send your spirit on us so that day by day and hour by hour, we know what you're asking of us for Jesus' sake. And everybody said, amen.